All right. Good morning. I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. It's Saturday, March 11th, 2023. And you have joined us for the Congregation of Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. Come to you each morning, uh, Monday through Saturday, for prayer. And on Saturdays, what we like to do during the school year in particular uh, is look at tomorrow's Old Testament and Epistle reading. And sometimes um, they are well connected with the Gospel text, other times they're not. Um, often <clears throat> they may be more or less familiar to you, so it's worth a little bit more study into them so that um, they can complement your total hearing of the Word of God tomorrow. Right? So that's what we're going to do today. So let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Memory verse. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, verse 105. And then our psalm for the week has been Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever. Amen. All right, I'm going to leave the psalm up on the screen there for you. Uh, what we like to do as well on Saturdays is maybe here a meditation upon the psalm, and that will help us understand what's going on, perhaps. Um, the psalmody is the original hymn book of the church, and like we do with hymns, so we should all, I think we ought to do with the psalms, is consider what the poet is or has in mind, or maybe what references both past and then future may be at play. This is from Patrick Henry Reardon's book, Christ in the Psalms. Psalm 120, Hebrew 121, may be prayed as a man's dialogue with his soul. As an internal discussion, the soul speaks both for itself and to itself, the pronouns alternating constantly between first and second person. I have raised mine eyes to the mountains. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and, um, did I get that right? Who made heaven and earth. He will suffer not your foot to slip, nor will he, or nor will your guard succumb to slumber. Behold, the guardian of Israel sleeps not, nor slumbers. The Lord will be your guard. At your right hand will the Lord be your security. The sun will not burn you by day, nor the moon assail you by night. The Lord shall guard you from every evil. The Lord will guard your soul. The Lord will guard your coming in and your going out, henceforth and forevermore. 
Okay. The thoughts of Psalm 120 are clearly those to which the believing mind will cleave, especially in times of trial. When spiritual help is most needed, whether as participle or finite verb, references to God's guarding me appear six times in the Psalms 8 verses. God's protection of me is complete, shall guard you from every evil, because he, quote, neither sleeps nor slumbers. This thoroughness of God's protection is emphasized by the twin polarities of sun by day, moon by night, and coming in, going out. For all that, the protection of God that God provides for me is not merely an individual blessing. This is not a psalm about God and me. I may pray this psalm and lay claim to its blessings, rather by reason of my adherence to his chosen people, the church, Israel, right? I am a sheep of his flock. My personal confidence in God's guardianship stands within a context determined by his covenanted interventions in human history. The Lord is is the guardian of my soul because he is the guardian of Israel. I may trust in him because he has made me too a child of Abraham. This truth tells me likewise the meaning of these mountains to which I have raised mine eyes and, quote, from where my help shall come. These mountains are my fixed foundations, the everlasting hills of my hope. Let these mountains ever serve, too, as bulwarks to the soul. Let me look upon them always. May the eyes of my soul never stray from gazing toward these mountains, because upon them the guardian of Israel neither slumbers or sleeps nor slumbers. Indeed, let me even now turn my thoughts to these godly mountains of my deliverance. Let me think of high Moriah, the mountain where the Lord provides. Let me climb with Abraham and wood-bearing Isaac to the altar of sacrifice. Let my help come to me too from mighty Sinai in covenant and law. Let me ascend with Moses and Elijah to stand before your face. Likewise, Lord, make me ever mindful of the mountain where you dispel satanic thought with the keen sword of Deuteronomy. Oh, suffer not that handsome blade to sleep within my hand. Again, in blessed assurance, let my help come from the mountain where you proclaim blessed the poor in spirit, and kindly count me, sir, among their number. Yet again, may my help come to me from the holy mountain, where, quote, such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son, Second Peter 2, or Second Peter 1, excuse me. With Simon, make me contemplate the glorious cloud, and with the sons of thunder. Oh, most certainly, let my help be established on forlorn Golgotha, whose dark ninth plague foreshadows for three hours the earthquake and the slaughter of the firstborn. Ooh, I like it. Ah, but let my help too be found on that mountain from which the eleven are sent forth to make disciples of all nations. For how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who proclaim peace and bring good tidings. And now let my help come to me from mystic Nebo, where I may gaze as the morning mist begins to clear across the green tree-lined Jordan to my wide inheritance. May I not perish, I pray, amidst the sons of Ammon, nor the children of Moab, And at last, dear Lord, let me stand with John on that great and high mountain to see the great city, holy Jerusalem, descending down from heaven, her light like a most precious stone, like a jasper clear as crystal, and with streets of gold like transparent glass. That city is the final Israel whose guardian, quote, neither sleeps nor slumbers. And until that day, Lord, teach me always to raise mine eyes to these mountains, quote, from where my help shall come. Ooh. Loved how he drew all the mountains together of the scriptures, but especially, I don't know if we made that connection when we went through the plagues under Pharaoh, 
but the ninth plague of darkness, the tenth plague of the death of the firstborn, are known at Golgotha. I wonder if you can keep working backwards from there. Let's not push it too far. Isn't that a lovely meditation? So good. All right. Our catechism for the week has been the table of duties to bishops, pastors, and preachers. We say it together. The overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. All right. Real Testament reading for tomorrow is going to be Jeremiah chapter 26. This is one of two alternatives. I don't know that I've selected this previously. All right. And I don't actually have a lot of resources on Jeremiah. I kind of feel like after Ezekiel, we might want to look at Jeremiah, but I think we need to do something a little bit more um, gospel-y once we get through Ezekiel. Although, uh, I've been pleasantly surprised. I, I kind of misunderstood what was going on in Ezekiel, I think, until uh, we've, we've done this study. We've seen all the connections, the reversals in the New Testament. Anyway, Jeremiah, contemporary, um, but still back in Jerusalem. Hear what happens there. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house, and speak to all the cities of Judah, which come to worship in the Lord's house, all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not diminish a word. Perhaps everyone will listen and turn from his evil way, that I may relent concerning the calamity which I propose to bring upon them, because of the evil of their doings. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, If you will not listen to me, to walk in my law which I have set before you, to heed the words of my servants, the prophets whom I sent to you, both rising up early and sending them, but you have not heeded, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. Actually, that same curse is uh, in our text for tomorrow in Bible study as well, Ezekiel. So the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And now it happened when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, that the priests and the prophets and all the people seized him, saying, You shall surely die, or will surely die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, which was destroyed, by the way, and this city shall be desolate without an inhabitant, And all the people were gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the princes of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and sat down in the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. And the priests and the prophets spoke to the princes and all the people, saying, This man deserves to die, for he has prophesied against this city, as you have heard with your ears. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the princes and all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city with all the words that you have heard. Now, therefore, amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and then the Lord will relent concerning the doom that he has pronounced against you. As for me, here I am in your hand. Do with me as seems good and proper to you. But know for certain that if you put me to death, you will surely bring innocent blood on yourselves, on the city and on its inhabitants. For truly the Lord has sent me to speak, or sent me to you to speak all these words. 
in your hearing. Oof, rough text, huh? Yeah. And uh, we've talked quite a bit about this in the context of Ezekiel, how difficult it is for the messengers that God sends, uh, especially when they are given to speak words of accusation and condemnation of the people for their idolatry, for their unbelief. You can see how well they receive that word. All right. Um, I'm going to share with you, I don't think I've shared any commentary with you um, from Philip Melanchthon, Luther's contemporary. Uh, we've shared the Augsburg Confession, of course, written by Philip. But um, listen to what he has to say about this prophecy. It was even more difficult to persuade the people to accept surrender since after the capitulation and exile of King Jehoiakim, 11 years passed before Jerusalem was besieged. Right? Meanwhile, those who remained behind were cursing the prophet, claiming that he had misled them and that he was an imposter and a false prophet. Right? So there's this gap between the first exile, which took Ezekiel, and when Jehoiakim is put, taken into exile, and then another puppet king is put in his place. Jeremiah, the nev nevertheless, stood by his words in the face of everyone's judgment and the apparent course of events. Grave matters of this kind, when a serious crisis envelops kingdom, homeland, the people of God, the temple, and its worship, ought to be deliberated by wise counselors as best they can, but they cannot be easily put in plain words. Jeremiah was under pressure because of the promises that seemed to contradict him. For example, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. And likewise, others that indicate the temple and its cult will endure until Messiah appears. In this case, Jeremiah needed spiritual wisdom to interpret the promises. God fulfills them, but not in the way human reason thinks. He gives posterity to Abraham, but not in the manner he expected. Likewise, in this case, God does preserve this people and their worship, but not in the way their human reason anticipated. First, he scatters the entire people. Then he thoroughly destroys the temple and abolishes its cult. But in spite of everything, God still fulfills his promise when the people return from exile. We ought to learn from these things that we should give preference to the word of God over everything else. What we experience as well as our opinions and deliberations, right? So we give priority to the word of God over what we experience uh, as well as our own opinions and deliberations. The apostles were promised that the church would be preserved, but they and all who listened to them were killed. In the meantime, however, the church consistently grew and flourished. Throughout our life, therefore, let us remember that divine promises are fulfilled in wondrous ways. How's that? That's from his uh, uh, lessons of Jeremiah's prophecy. Okay. This is an interesting commentary. It's got all sorts of reformed peoples in it, people in it. How about Nicholas Zelnecker? And this will connect well with uh, our table of duties as well. Um, Zelnecker, you might know from, oh, which hymn do we sing that Zelnecker's hymn? I can't remember. He's also a contributor to the Formula of Concord. Jeremiah's colleagues and fellow clergy could not endure such a sermon from the prophet, so they condemned Jeremiah to death, so that he should be turned over to the court and then stoned as a seducer, as one who curses, a blasphemer, and a rebel, who prophesied against the temple of God. Such actions are like what our Lord Christ himself and Stephen encountered. As Christ reports in Matthew 5 and says, they have persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we also see in our times, our adversaries resist and condemn true teachers as heretics and blasphemers who cause rebellion to and destruction of the orderly power in the church and God, church of God. Yet they know and express the commands of God with vivid words, flee idolatry. We can do nothing against the word before it. 
Serve me in vain with human statutes. Beware of false prophets. Christ says, Who is not with me is against me, and who does not join me will be scattered. So Paul says, When an angel from heaven comes and preaches another gospel, then the apostle preaches to us, so shall it be cursed. Upright teachers and true Christians should obey such vivid and clear commands of God and not question them. The world of pope, emperor, king, princes, pastors, and others may speak and contend with you as they will. Blessed are you, Christ says, when they want to malign you for my sake and persecute you. You will be rewarded in heaven. Though the clergy lords of the temple wanted to throttle Jeremiah, God sent some helpful means through the pious authorities, through the royal council. The pious Jeremiah was saved and above action was hindered. Then they defended the prophet Jeremiah and said, He has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. With these words they showed that they held Jeremiah's message and warning to be the voice and word of God, and they feared God's wrath more than the pastors themselves, who should have preached God's word. This is a great and glorious moment for worldly authorities, when they take on the heart of a true teacher for themselves against everyone else in the world. So it is in our time, Duke and Elector Frederick of Saxony protected and defended Martin Luther against the Pope and worldly tyranny. In this way, we learn that God will not abandon his own, especially those who earnestly follow the word, though likewise, according to his will, they must endure and suffer something. One may teach a long time and pursue their office a good while, just as Jeremiah taught for 40 years long to the destruction of Jerusalem, and thereafter he also preached while in Egypt until he was killed by Apries, the king of Egypt. Another prophet endeavors for a short time and soon dies, or is likewise gathered up as with Uriah, the colleague and associate of Jeremiah. Likewise, James the Apostle was killed by Herod, yet Peter came along and preached much longer. Such is God's way, and his judgments and his counsels are unknown to us. That's from uh, Zellnecker's uh, Der ganze Prophet Jeremias. Um, all right, maybe it's not Pharaoh Apries, maybe it's Fairy Amasis II, but either way, <laughs> whichever Pharaoh it is. All right, this is an interesting commentary. I just got this last year and I forgot all about it. There's all sorts of good things in it. Hmm. All right, so the key here is to pre- preach God's word, whether the people like it or like it not, right? And that's the prof- um, pastor's job, as we saw here, right? He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it, as Jeremiah here does, right? I can only say what the Lord has given me to say, whether you like it or like it not. All right, uh, tomorrow's gospel text is um, Jesus talking about the nature of demonic captivity, which connects well with last Sunday, of course, too, um, and how when um, the demon is cast out by the strong, uh, the stronger one, um, yet he comes back with seven worse than the first, which has under, been understood by the church for a long time to be a reference to baptism, um, baptism when it is not followed up by the pre- regular hearing and preaching of God's word and the reception of and preparation and then reception of the sacrament. All right. So, and you'll hear that echoed here in the epistle, which of course is historic, unlike the Jeremiah text, which was added. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma that will also be in Bible study tomorrow. <laughs> the sweet smelling aroma that should be offered to God, um, the idolatrous. Uh, Jerusalem was offering up to idols. All right. But fornication and all uncleanness and covet or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking, 
nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. There it is, connected to Jeremiah. Because, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is all goodness, righteousness, and truth. All right, so clearly children of light, made children by baptism, right? Uh, walk in love as Christ also has loved himself as dear children, be imitators of God, right? And do not be joined to who? The unclean, the covetous, the, Id- the idolater, right? And how would you be joined to them? By listening to their deceitful words, their empty words, right? So again, think of last Sunday's sermon for that. Um, with the example I gave of the uh, oh the college student who comes back who's been filled with empty words, right? Especially if they went to a state college and took any kind of comparative religion or philosophy class, you know, and for that matter, pretty much anything these days. Um, Pastor Riley and I just um, actually bumped into a work from Luther that I think would be appropriate here for us to hear, and that is from 1519. It's a work that he calls the Holy and Blessed Sacrament of Baptism. Um, and this was written, you know, pretty early for Luther in the Reformation. And what he does is he just walks through um, baptism point by point, I suppose. And, you know, the, the articulation, as you know it, from the Catechism doesn't come until 1529, so 10 years later. All right. And, uh, yeah, 20 paragraphs of logical progression from sign, um, immersion, and then what does it signify, and then faith, and we're going to look at faith here today. All right, and then um, um, it's it's actually not very polemical, which you might be surprised of, because Luther's works usually are pretty polemical. Um, but here, you know, he's still looking for um, for a church council, right? He hasn't been excommunicated yet, that sort of thing. Uh, the polemical notes come later with the Anabaptists, and also um, as Luther makes his reformations to the uh, baptismal rite, beginning in. When was the first revision of the baptismal rite? Um, 1523, and then again in 1526. Basically, what we have today is 1526. So I'm just taking out some of the extra stuff, like um, putting salt on the tongue and some other things. Strange practices, some of which Rome still does. All right. So I'm going to read a little bit here at the beginning, and then we'll skip to where he talks about faith. Baptism is baptismos in Greek or mercio in Latin, and it means to plunge something completely underwater so that the water covers it. Although in many places it is no longer customary to thrust or dip infants into the font, but only uh, with the hand to pour baptismal water upon them out of the font, nevertheless the former is what should be done. He later changes his mind on that. <laughs> it would be proper, according to the meaning of the word taufa, that the infant or whoever is to be baptized should be put in and sunk completely under the water and then drawn out again. All right. For even in the German tongue, the word taufa comes undoubtedly from the word tear, deep, and come, and means that w- what is baptized is sunk deeply in water. Later, he comes to realize that baptism, by the way, just means to wash with water. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean to immerse. You saw here how he was drawing on the Latin um, for immersio, but an immersion, right? Um, then, baptism is an external sign or token, which so separates us from all men that not baptized, that we are thereby known as the people of Christ, our leader, under whose banner 
of the Holy Cross, we continually fight against sin. In this Holy Sacrament, we must therefore pay attention to three things, the sign, the significance of it, and the faith. All right, so there we have the sign, which is, of course, water, and the name. Um, the significance is the dying into sin and the resurrection in the grace of God, so that the old man conceived and born in sin is there drowned, and the new man born in grace comes forth and rises. All right, and so there he already has Titus 3 in mind, which we hear in the small catechism. Therefore, sins are drowned in baptism, and in place of sin, righteousness comes forth. The significance of baptism, the dying and drowning of sin, is not uh, fulfilled completely in this life. Indeed, this does not happen until man passes through bodily death and completely decays to dust. As we can plainly see, the sacrament or sign of baptism is quickly over, but the spiritual baptism, the drowning of sin, which it signifies, lasts as long as we live and is completely completed only in death. Then it is the person, a person is completely sunk in baptism and that which baptism signifies comes to pass. All right, so he, he actually moves on from this idea too, that it's not a progression, but it's actually a daily dying and rising, quoting Paul, all right? Um, and of course it is, baptism is finally completed with death. Therefore, this whole life is nothing else than a spiritual baptism which does not cease till death, and he who is baptized is condemned to death. Um, I think he moves away from this language of spiritual baptism too, all right? There is no help for the sinful nature unless it dies and is destroyed with all its sin. Therefore, the life of the Christian from baptism to the grave is nothing else than the beginning of a blessed death. For at the last day, God will make him altogether new. Luther moves away from that kind of stoic idea of a, of a good death, actually. <laughs> so, so a lot of these things in 1519, he, he, he does depart from. Uh, let's see. Similarly, the lifting up out of the baptism water is quickly done, but the thing it signifies, the spiritual birth, there you go, John 3, and the increase of grace and righteousness, even though it begins in baptism, lasts until death, indeed, until the last day, and then it is finished. Baptism ha was foreshown of old in Noah's flood. Luther has that in his flood prayer. All right. Um, and then paragraph 7. From this it follows, to be sure, that when someone comes forth out of baptism, he is truly pure, without sin, and wholly guiltless. Still, there are many who do not properly understand this. They think that sin is no longer present so that they become remiss and negligent in killing their own sinful nature. It should be properly understood and known that our flesh, as long as it lives here, is by nature wicked and sinful. All right. Uh, I'm going to skip a few more paragraphs. Trying to remember what I wanted to look at here. Um, yeah, here we'll look at this. So you understand how in baptism a person becomes guiltless, pure, and sinless, while at the same time continuing full of in evil inclinations, right? So he's talking, he's already, he's not quite articulated this yet, but he will, that we are a simultaneously sinner and saint, saint by declaration and baptism, um, sinner while we remain in the flesh uh, until the resurrection. He can be called pure only in the sense that he has started to become pure and has a sign and covenant of this purity and as is ever to become more pure. Well, he does move away from this language too. Um, he will say that we're pure by declaration, by God's word, not, um, not in a sense of um, our own purity becoming more and more. Because of this, God will not count against him his former impurity. A person is thus pure by the gracious imputation of God. Ah, there we go. Better. God imputes his righteousness upon us rather than by virtue of his own nature. As the prophet says in Psalm 32, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, um, whose sin is covered. This faith is of all things the most necessary. And here we go with faith. For it is the ground of all comfort. 
He who does not possess such faith must despair of his sins, for the sin which remains after baptism makes it impossible for any good works to be pure before God. For this reason we must boldly and without fear hold fast to our baptism and set it high against all sins and terrors of conscience. Right? I am baptized into Christ. We'll sing that tomorrow. We must humbly admit, I know full well that I cannot do a single thing that is pure, but I am baptized, and through my baptism God, who cannot lie, has bound himself in a covenant with me. He will not count my sin against me, but will slay it and blot it out. So then we understand that the innocence, which is ours by baptism, is so-called simply and sorely, solely because of the mercy of God. All right. For he who has begun this work in us, he bears patiently with our sin, and he regards us as if we were sinless. I love that. He bears patiently with our sin and regards us as if we were sinless. This also explains why Christians are called in the scriptures the children of mercy, the people of grace, men of God's goodwill, dear children, right? We see that here by baptism. It is because through baptism they have begun to be to become pure by God's mercy with respect to the sins that they still remain. Um, they are not condemned until finally through death and at the last day they become wholly pure just as a sign, the sign of baptism shows, All right? Right, so we're going to hear quite a bit about baptism because baptism, of course, is how God sets us free from the um, the bondage, the slavery, the, um, uh, the well, those are the best words to the devil and to his works and his ways. Right? Uh, and then it is actually um, for us then to live as the children of God, holy, um, free from sin and from the devil and from this world, because we have been baptized in His name and uh, given His Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean we always believe that, but that's the truth, right? So God reminds us again. All right, so hopefully that's helpful for tomorrow because you're going to hear quite a bit about baptism as well. And uh, the throne of your heart. (laughs) All right, you'll hear that too. Our hymn for this week has been Win in the Hour, Deepest Need. It's a lovely hymn by Paul Eber. Um, I've got quite a devotion here written about it, quite, quite a lot of history. Who did this? Text background. Oh, Chris Toma and Joseph Hurl. All right, Toma, pastor in Michigan, and uh, Joseph Hurl is one of Ethan's professors. While returning home from study at gymnasium, that is the academic high school, at Ansbach in 1524, because of the onset of a serious illness, Paul Eber, 1511 to 1569, was thrown from his steed and painfully towed for more than a mile, ultimately leaving him permanently disabled. Wow. Because of the illness and frightening personal tragedy that followed, it should be of no surprise that the theologian and hymnographer, considered by Julian the second only to Luther among the Wittenberg bards, would many years later put pen to paper and compose a hymn that speaks of great sorrows wrapped in endless days of anxious thought and helpless counsel, and yet pays glad thanksgiving to the one whose grace abounds. The 19th century historian of hymns, Richard Lauxman, traced this hymn to the Battle of Muehlberg, in 1547. But in 1964, Conrad Ameln reported the discovery of a broadsheet of this hymn from 1567, and beneath the hymn is the sentence, quote, Paulo Saberus uh, Fasibat anno 1566, quo gens in whatever, Latin stuff. That is, Paul Eber wrote this hymn in the year 1566 when the Turks raged in Hungary and the pestilence in this, our region. More reliable evidence can hardly be produced, and so we can be assured that this hymn was created two decades after the date reported in many sources. 
A better attested story related by Loxman d- d- dates from 1639 when the hymn was sung in Eilenburg under the direction of Archdeacon Martin Rinkhart, who authored the hymn, Now Think We All Are God, right? when Swedish forces threatened the town. It is said that the singing impressed the Swedish commander so much that he greatly reduced the payment he was demanding to keep the town safe. I think you heard that story before. Lauxman recounted several other incidents in which people were saved after singing or playing this hymn. Most touching occurred in uh, Pegau near Leipzig in 1644. That city refused to surrender to Swedish forces, and so the Swedish general ordered grenades to be launched into the city. The city was soon burning, and a hailstorm hindered attempts to put out the fires. Women and children fled into the streets, then into the fields, where they were forced to spend a cold December night in the open. City leaders tried to open negotiations with the Swedish general, but for him the time to negotiate was long past. Finally, the chief pastor of the city made a last desperate attempt, walking through the Swedish onslaught with twelve boys clad in white all the way to the Swedish general's tent. Upon arrival, the pastor had the boys kneel and sing, when in the hour of deepest need. When they were finished, the pastor had barely begun to speak when the general rose and embraced him, recognizing him as an old school friend. In the end, the general ordered that food and supplies be provided to the city, and he treated the people well. The grateful populace continued to sing the hymn every Sunday at the start of afternoon service, a practice that was still current in the 19th century when this incident was reported. Loxman suggested two possible influences on the hymn, First was connected with the fateful Battle of Muhlenberg in 1547. As Elector Saxony was captured by enemy forces, correspondence was sent demanding the Lutheran city of Wittenberg be turned over to Catholic forces of Emperor Charles V. Johann Bugenhagen, the pastor of the city church in Wittenberg, the one whom Eber would eventually replace as pastor, gathered the people together in the church and prayed. Quote, Because we do not know in this time of need what we should do, We have only one thing left, dear Heavenly Father, that we lift our eyes to you. All on which people depend, we have had in abundance, and and through it we have have been corrupted, so that we might not put our trust in created things or human works. You have also taken from us our dear Lord and Elector. Therefore we now give thanks, dear Father, for your grace, that you have forced us with this fatherly punishment to rely solely on your mercy in Christ Jesus, as you require of us in the first commandment. Now you have what you desire from us. Deal graciously with your poor children and let your Holy Spirit be our elector and and with us that you may give good counsel so that we might be saved. That's amazing. The second is a brief verse by Eber's teacher, Joachim Kamarinius. In the darkness and thick fog of our mind, when no guidance is coming from our whole breast, distressed we lift to you, O God, the eyes of, of the heart, and our faith begs you alone for action. Direct our deeds by your counsels, O best fathers, that our every act might redound to your glory. Hmm. All right. right. Eber even, uh, boy, there's even more here, noted that uh, this was, had a heading under it, the prayer of Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles 20, made into song. And that's uh, his prayer, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms and nations. You can read that in, uh, again, 2 Chronicles 20. Maybe. All sorts of good things on that one. Now you know more than you thought you'd ever know about this hymn. But there it is. Let's sing it.
in the hour of deepest need. We know not where to look for aid when days and nights of anxious thought. No help or counsel yet have Is our comfort this alone that we may meet before your throne? To you, O faithful God, we cry for rescue in our misery. For you have promised. Children's cries in time of need. Through him alone, whose name is great, our Savior and our Advocate. And so we come, O Lord, this day, and all our woes before you. Sorely tried, cast down we stand, perplexed by fears on every hand. Oh, from our sins, Lord, turn our face, absolve us from your boundless grace, be with us in our at last from every hill. So we with all our hearts each day to your heart let thanksgiving pay then walk obedient to your word and now and ever pray Well, I wasn't intentionally making <laughs> some textual changes there. Uh, be patient with me on those. Thank you. All right. Any collects? Yeah, I can't recall. Let's see here. Nope. Just the anniversary of my uh, my grandfather's wedding. There we go. So let us pray. Oh God, you see that of ourselves we have no strength. By your mighty power, defend us from all adversities that may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. O Lord Jesus, you are the bishop and overseer of our souls. You are the Lord of the harvest and have commanded us to pray for the gift of pastors, to preach the gospel and shepherd your church. Raise up men for the office of the holy ministry who are above reproach, the husband of but one wife, who are temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach your life-giving word. Deliver all pastors from the self-centered vices of the flesh. Grant them your grace to manage their families well and to bring up their children in the true faith with proper respect and devotion to the word of God. 
Give them courage to hold firmly to the trustworthy message of the gospel as it has been handed down to them, and the wisdom to refute those who oppose it. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We pray this day for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Pray today in Thanksgiving with Anthony celebrating his birthday, with Jarrett and Brenna celebrating their baptism. Pray for the households of our church, especially this week with Eric, Roger and Sherry, Tara, Deb, Dan, Don and Jean. Continue to give thanks to God for the reception of the divine call by Karen, um, for the birth of Amalia Renee and Frida Lynette. Pray for our catechumens, Christian, Wyatt, Aaliyah, Lydia, Charlie, Kaylee, and Kimberly. Pray for those ill receiving treatment or recovering, especially Marcella, Joe, Kelsey, Walt, Christopher, Joyce, Brad, and Betty, Doug, Joan, John, and Pat, our homebound Dan, Paul, Merlin, and Pauline, the missions and mercy work of the church, especially that of Camp Luisimo. Pray for the afflicted and those suffering, suffering, and we pray with the family and friends of Ed who grieve his death. For all this, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings and life may please you, For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul, and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right. It's been a joy to have you with us here today for the Congregation of Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. Uh, come to you each morning at 9 a.m., except for Sundays. Tomorrow we'll, uh, it'll be 9.30, and we will have uh, divine service. All right. And Bible study following, Ezekiel chapter 16. We're going to do quite a bit more of it. I think we might be able to get through it all. We'll see how it goes. Um, it's kind of repetitive and also a little depressing. So uh, between the two of those, um, we may leave most of it to your imagination and, uh, and just move on. All right. Uh, So we'll try to finish that out tomorrow as well. And you'll hear a lot of connections to the text that we heard from Jeremiah and from Romans too. And maybe even from the gospel, now that I think about it. All right. So God be with you all. Keep you safe. I hope to see you tomorrow morning at 9.30 for divine service. Oh, don't forget your clocks. (laughs) Set your clocks forward. Do it now. Just live the rest of the day with your clocks forward. Then you won't worry about it in the morning. All right. Good. God be with you all. See you soon. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church, Sherman Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.